Welcome to Story and Star Wars. I'm Alistair Stevens. This week, in a special addition to our Story and Star Wars schedule, I have some further thoughts and some listener feedback on The Last Jedi, just so we can catch our breath between discussions of Solo, a Star Wars story. I've been struck over the course of the last few weeks by the popular response to The Last Jedi. Normally, I would have expected the fiercest discussion to have abated somewhat in the time since the movie's release, but rather than settling into a critical consensus, the discourse surrounding The Last Jedi seems to be more polarized, emphatic, defensive, and in some ways toxic than ever. Which isn't just surprising, but also rather poetic. Because it turns out that our relationship with the movie is awfully close to an inadvertent thematic reflection of the movie itself. The Last Jedi tells us that we must not let the past define the future, not in the context of the Jedi Order, as Luke argues, not in the context of the Rebellion or the Resistance, as Leia and Holdo suggest, not in the context of the First Order, as seen in the actions of Hux and, arguably, Phasma, not in the context of the galactic status quo and the state of permanent warfare which has existed since the fall of the Galactic Senate and the rise of the Empire, as demonstrated by the opulent weapon dealers of Kanto Bight, and not in the context of our personal histories, as demonstrated by by Kylo Ren, by Rey, by Rose. We have to let go of the past or kill it if you have to, not because the past is irrelevant or meaningless, but because holding too tightly to the past, defining what is and what can be only in terms of what has been, will only lead us to the diminishment of self and others, to an impoverished present and a hopeless future. That isn't to say that we have to forget the past or to step down from this oddly elevated thematic platform that we need to set aside the other Star Wars movies in our analysis and appreciation of The Last Jedi. But it does mean, crucially, that we should strive to see this film for what it is and not just as a shadow of the movies which preceded it, either positively or negatively. It's okay to feel the tension between what was and what is, to foreshadow our discussion of the Force later in this very episode, and it's okay to feel the tension between what we enjoy about the movie and what we don't. Despite what the internet and your social media feeds may tell you, you don't have to collapse your Venn diagram response to this movie, or to any movie, into a single clean circle. We have to embrace complexity. We have to embrace failure. The greatest teacher failure is as freely as we embrace success and live in the complicated aftermath. And in that spirit, I'd like to thank you all for your insightful and thoughtful emails about The Last Jedi. I'm sure that we are all a little exhausted by the shrill and insistent parts of the internet, but you have all contributed to a smart, wise, and positive discourse that I have enjoyed thoroughly. So thank you for the emails which will form the heart of this show and the many other emails which I've answered and the many, many other emails which I haven't yet responded to. You are all the best. Before we get to the listener emails, though, a tangent. I've been thinking a lot about the movement of the Star Wars series as a whole and what to expect from Episode Nine, the third movie in this, the third trilogy, and appropriately enough, I've been thinking about these things in the context of the third lesson. As you'll recall, when Rey finally convinces Luke to train her, he promises her three lessons which will illustrate why the Jedi have to end. The first is the Feel the Force sequence, in which he makes it clear to her that the Force is not the sole possession or preserve of the Jedi. More on that in a moment. The second lesson focuses on failure, on hubris and hypocrisy, and the argument that the Jedi Order did more harm than good. The third lesson is absent from the movie. 
There was a scripted sequence in which Luke would warn Rey of raiders approaching the island. She would rush to the island's defense, only to learn that there were no raiders and that Luke was making a point about action versus inaction, or specific and personal responsibility versus the abstracted responsibility of the Jedi Order, or indeed of any community. That, by the way, would have cleaned up some of Rey's motivation with regard to Kylo Ren, because it would have pushed her further away from Luke, and it also would have played beautifully with some of the other core themes of The Last Jedi, particularly Poe's storyline and its interest in individual heroism versus leadership and the preservation, the service of community. But we'll write it off as a missed opportunity, because the third lesson doesn't make the edit of the final movie and doesn't even appear as a quasi-canonical deleted scene. So Luke promises three lessons, delivers two, and the movie carries on oblivious. Except, of course, that this was a $300 million production, and if Ryan Johnson had wanted to, he could have removed or amended the reference to three lessons during the post-production process, particularly because the last half of the three lessons line is obscured by Luke turning away from the camera. Instead, he left the promise of three lessons intact for one of two possible reasons— that there is a third lesson secretly encoded in the plot of this movie, or that the third lesson will come back around in the next Star Wars episode. Or I suppose there is a third alternative here. I suppose that the failure to teach the promised third lesson is actually just making good on the second lesson. In my pride and hubris, I promised three lessons, but as the legacy of the Jedi is the ash of failure and ruination, so I have forgotten to write out a comprehensive lesson plan. It's possible, but let's assume for now that that is not in fact the case. My best guess is that episode 9 will feature a reference to the third lesson, not least of all because I fully expect the return of Luke Skywalker, perhaps as a conventional force ghost in the traditional sense, and perhaps as something else, possibly something more powerful. It is possible, though, that the third lesson is right there in the heart of The Last Jedi, hidden in plain sight and presented to us in another three-beat structure, the lesson of what happened at the Jedi training temple with young Ben Solo. Luke's failure speaks to both the idea that the Force and the Jedi are not one and the same, and the pride necessary to believe that they are. Luke, as the last Jedi Master, believes that he has an obligation to pass on what he has learned, to preserve the light, because without the Jedi, there is no Force. Worse still, he has to pass on what he has learned in order to combat the darkness of the Sith, the influence of Snoke over, specifically, Ben Solo. It is a position of responsibility, but also a position that presupposes a singular uniquity. To perform a little logical manipulation of some famous words, if great responsibility, then infer great power. It is staggeringly prideful. Luke is arguing that he is wrong, though Yoda, later in the movie, will offer a counterpoint perspective. And if the first lesson teaches us that the Jedi are inessential and prideful, and the second teaches us that they fail, which is evident in the second version of the Training Temple story, rather than standing against the darkness, Luke's actions precipitate exactly the dark side turn of which he was fearful, the third lesson, then, may be the third version of the story, told Rashomon style at the heart of the film. Failure and pride and darkness and corruption all, that the Jedi don't just fail to stand against the dark side, or allow the dark side to rise in their ignorance and hubris, noting the rise of Darth Sidious and the Empire and the conspicuously, prominently unnamed Jedi Master who trained Darth Vader, but rather that the Jedi cause the darkness, the stain upon the light. This might be, by implication then, the third lesson. The first teaches us that the Jedi were possessive of the Force and are not synonymous with the Force. The second, that the Jedi failed. And the third, that they caused the darkness they proceeded to fight, that darkness which ultimately claimed them and the galaxy as a whole. 
I am not, I should say, completely convinced by this chain of thought. I'm still inclined to see the third lesson as a deliberately unresolved plot point, which will be picked up in episode nine. But if Luke wants to demonstrate why the Jedi need to end, he makes a pretty compelling case by telling the story of the training temple, particularly since he chooses to present the truth first from a certain point of view and clarifies the more complex reality only while Rey is standing over him holding a lightsaber. There is, I suppose, another potential interpretation, but it's a little more complicated and depends upon the plot and the thematic thrust of Episode Nine, namely that the third lesson is actually demonstrated by Luke on Crate, in which he may keep his promise and demonstrate why the Jedi Order has to end by preserving balance and non-intervention, even in the face of extreme provocation. That is to say that he appears to take action on Crate, but doesn't. All he does is buy time for the Rebels to escape. That is a very fine and elusive technical distinction, and no one has ever accused Luke Skywalker or the Star Wars movies in general, come to that, of a comprehensive and pedantic philosophy, but there may be more on that idea after we've seen episode nine. So with all that said, let's move on and talk about some of the workings of the Force in The Last Jedi with this question from Albert. Albert writes, For me, the most confusing thing about The Last Jedi is the treatment of the Force. It seems as though we're changing the way the Force is depicted in Star Wars, but I'm not sure that Ryan Johnson really understands it, and I don't think I like the change. What do you think? Albert, thank you so much for writing. I will agree that the treatment of the Force in The Last Jedi is one of the more provocative and fascinating things about the world building that we get in the movie. But rather than seeing it as a change in our previous understanding of the Force, I see it more as an evolution. It develops and refines our understanding, but I don't think we're seeing a hard break from what was previously established. Apart, of course, from the conspicuous absence of midichlorians. Speaking of which, we are not going to delve into the perspective offered on the Force by Qui-Gon Jinn in the context of the Clone Wars series, because we're hopefully going to look at the Clone Wars series itself at some point in the future, and The Last Jedi doesn't acknowledge the distinction made between the living and cosmic forces, so we are still, to all intents and purposes, in the movie-only single and unified Force continuity. That may not last, but I'm inclined to think that it will. So let's begin with our understanding of the Force and what we can conclude and infer directly from the movies about its nature and role. Back in A New Hope, Obi-Wan gives us our first introduction to the Force. Quote, The Force is what gives a Jedi his power. It's an energy field created by all living things. It surrounds us and penetrates us. It binds the galaxy together. I should note that as I'm reading Obi-Wan's dialogue here in the studio, I am actually making the Alec Guinness gestures from A New Hope because apparently I am incapable of not doing that. That may be just me. Let's jump ahead to The Last Jedi for a little compare and contrast then. When Luke asks Rey, what do you know about the Force? She replies, quote, It is a power that Jedi have that lets them control people and make things float. Luke tells her, in his way, that every word in that sentence is wrong. The Force, by inference, therefore, is not a power that the Jedi have, but rather, as Obi-Wan says, the source of the Jedi's power. The two are connected, but are distinct. You don't own the sun, but you can turn its warmth into power. Jedi can, of course, make things float and control people, or at least manipulate the weak-willed, but that is not a property of the Force, Rather, it's an application of the Jedi's power. Luke then goes on to clarify, The Force is not a power you have. It's not about lifting rocks. It's the energy between all things, a tension, a balance that binds the universe together. Which isn't disconnected from what Obi-Wan had to say. The Force surrounds us and binds us, penetrates us. But whereas Obi-Wan suggests a certain coherent passivity in the energy field created by all living things, Luke offers us the first wrinkle of complexity that it is both tension and balance. 
These two qualities are obviously not synonymous. We might expect balance to be a point of peace and stasis, but the presence of tension, of opposed pairs and the tug of power and presence between them, suggests that the force is not the fragile product of balance, silenced or shattered by the noise of conflict. Rather, it is in that conflict that we find the origin of the force. Ray develops this idea further when we get into the first lesson proper. When asked what she feels, she says, quote, The island, life, death, decay that feeds new life, warm, cold, peace, violence. Luke asks, and between it all, and Ray replies, balance, energy, the force. Ray then gets her first glimpse of the entrance to the mirror cave, and Luke tells her, balance, powerful light, powerful darkness. And this gives us what I take to be a really meaningful and substantial insight into both the source and the function of the force. Places of power are not found where the force is strong. Rather, the force is strong where there are places of power, more specifically, where there are opposed places of power. Not just any will do. Places of life and death in close proximity, places of warmth and cold, places of light and dark. Why does Yoda, given the whole of Dagobah, live near the dark side cave? It seems likely that it is because the force around that cave, generated in and by the tension between the dark side cave and an implied theoretical place of power for the light side of the force nearby, is simply more potent. Achtu is a place of power. The first Jedi temple, opposed with the mirror cave, generates a greater potential force than in other places, which is not to say that the Jedi temple was at least originally a place of light, rather that it was probably constructed upon a pre-existing place of light. We still don't know what those words mean exactly in the span of Star Wars, but there's enough here to speculate upon. This suggests that the Force is, to some extent, geographically limited. The whole notion of places of power suggests that the distribution of the Force is not even and equal throughout the entire galaxy, but may flow forth from points of profound opposition created by that singular tension to fill the spaces between the stars. This might, if we were to squint just a little, give us a fan theory explaining the differing power levels displayed by the Jedi throughout the series. Why some applications of Jedi power seem trivial and straightforward at certain points within the series, and at other times hugely stressful and difficult. It's a somewhat insubstantial thought. It needs more development. We may circle back around to that in the future. This also suggests, of course, that Luke's theoretical third lesson is wrong. If opposition and tension create the force, and if the tension between the light and dark creates the force more powerfully than other oppositions, then it is meaningless to say that the Jedi created the dark side, or are responsible for the creation of the dark side. Though, in this instance, as in all instances, we must be careful about terminology and painstakingly differentiate between the dark, the dark side of the Force, and the shadow caused by the presence of evil in the galaxy. These three things are not the same. The Jedi could not have created the first. The second is an inevitable consequence of the first, but the third, well, the third is potentially still in play if we are to credit Luke's argument at all. Though there is still greater conversation to be had about the dark and light sides of the Force with regard to this new understanding, if there is a single Force generated by the tension and balance between light and dark, then what is, meaningfully, the dark side? Is it something distinct from the light side, as we might have surmised from innumerable conversations through the series as a whole? Or is it just a descriptor applied to the use of the Force in quote-unquote evil ways, or to achieve quote-unquote evil ends? What is the distinction between the Jedi mind trick and Sith Force lightning? 
Are the sides of the force merely representative of where an individual force user is standing in regard to other force users rather than a meaningful distinction between one type of power and another? Well, these must remain, for now, unanswered questions. We should also, while we're discussing the Force in The Last Jedi, talk a little about the new Force power of astral projection, the ability to appear and communicate over vast distances. This is used first by Snoke, allegedly, to connect Kylo Ren and Rey throughout the movie. It is also used by Luke to remotely visit Crate during the climax of the film and to buy time for the Rebels to escape. There have been criticisms that the Force projection mechanic isn't properly foreshadowed, but... I reject that pretty comprehensively. Obviously, the interactions between Kylo Ren and Rey foreshadow this ability, albeit in a relatively weak and abstracted way. When Kylo and Rey touch on Arc 2, Luke doesn't seem surprised by the appearance of Kylo Ren, but rather by the mastery of the Force implied by his appearance. He knows that it is possible, but not that it is practical. Snoke takes credit for the trick, which does suggest either a connection between Luke and Snoke, which may be revealed in Episode 9, or a case of parallel discovery like calculus. Discerning listeners may be able to tell that I'm a little suspicious of Snoke's claim, and I am. Kylo and Rey are connected after Snoke's death too, which may mean that the connection lingers even after the creator of that connection has been killed, or that Snoke was taking credit for something which actually had nothing to do with him. I wouldn't put it past him. I'm very interested to see if this connection between Kylo Ren and Rey continues into the third movie. I feel simultaneously as though we have explored the narrative space created by this connection, and also that it is too powerful and compelling a mechanic for J.J. Abrams to simply set aside. We shall see. So, as ever, we are left with many more questions about the Force than we have answers. But for me, the most provocative thing that The Last Jedi does in its two-and-a-half-hour running time is anchor the creation of the Force not in balance, not crucially in harmony, which we might have expected from the previous Star Wars movies, but rather in tension, in that dynamic interaction between opposed pairs. That, to me remains completely fascinating, and I am going to be thinking, and I assure you, talking about that for a long time to come. Let's move on to our second question. Cardi asks, why, and maybe how, did Luke cut himself off from the Force? Why is he in the Jedi Temple if he wanted to be separate from the light side? When did he make that decision? Cardi, this is absolutely fascinating and has carried me down a speculative path that I have really, really enjoyed and which I will now share with you. We have three questions here in descending order of difficulty. How, why, and when. The when seems pretty straightforward. We know that the destruction of the Jedi Temple happens between the year 28 ABY, that's after the Battle of Yavin, and 34 ABY, when The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi both take place. Given the shift in galactic power and the legend of Luke Skywalker among the members of the Resistance, I would suggest that the date of the destruction of the temple is much closer to the former than the latter. That is, something like six years ago. There's nothing in the text to suggest that Luke didn't cut himself off from the Force immediately thereafter. Indeed, when we move on to the why, we might infer that it makes sense for it to happen pretty much simultaneously with the betrayal and turn of Ben Solo. So, why does Luke cut himself off? Well, first, it makes a certain amount of practical sense. He wants to hide on Arc 2, but any passing Force-sensitive person may be able to sense him if he is still connected to the Force. Secondly, and perhaps much more importantly, Luke has obviously become disillusioned with the Jedi and with the Force, so cutting himself off is an act of rejection and, lowercase r, rebellion. But this analysis only raises further questions. 
Disillusioned, Luke withdraws from public life, from the service of the Republic and the Resistance, and cuts himself off from the Force. He goes to await and perhaps even pursue his own death. He has failed. So, of course, rather than losing himself in any of the myriad spaceports and trading centers across the galaxy, rather than traveling to an empty world or hiding away in the Dune Sea on Tatooine or the swamps of Dagobah, he instead tracks down the very first Jedi Temple and makes his home there. Why does Luke seek out the home of the Jedi Order if he is already disillusioned, if he is primarily disillusioned with the Jedi at this point? We can readily speculate that nothing has changed his mind about the Jedi since coming to Ark 2. At least, we know that he has never read the Jedi texts, despite understanding how important they are. So, there are two possible solutions. Heartbroken after the turn of Ben Solo and the destruction of the temple, Luke chooses to go into exile, closes himself off from the Force voluntarily, and lives in isolation on Ark 2. The second possibility, and this for me is much more compelling, is that in the moment of his failure, he found himself cut off from the Force involuntarily. Perhaps it was psychological, perhaps it was mystical, perhaps it was the will of the Force, but somehow, against Luke's own will, he found that he could no longer feel the Force around him. That might easily explain his flight to Ark 2 and his ultimate rejection of the Jedi Order and the Force. He doesn't begin disillusioned, he becomes disillusioned. He is, of course, reconnected in the course of the movie, long before we get to Crate. We know this because Leia can't see the Force ghosts at the end of Return of the Jedi despite being Force-sensitive, which suggests that seeing Force ghosts is a product of Jedi training. This is confirmed, of course, at the end of Revenge of the Sith when Yoda offers to teach Obi-Wan how to commune, his word, with his dead master Qui-Gon Jinn. It seems to be the case, therefore, that Luke is reconnected to the Force by the time he meets Yoda at the Great Tree, and we know that he can wield Force powers prior to this as he stops himself from falling onto the stairs after being attacked by Rey. This is to represent both a simple application of the Force, preventing himself from being knocked down to the steps by Rey, and a greater, more spiritual, more arguably mystical connection to the Force that is the manifestation of Master Yoda. The moment where he falls on the staircase, by the way, and prevents himself from hitting the ground is most likely the moment at which his connection to the Force is restored. Certainly the way that moment is shot and framed implies a great deal of significance to what is a relatively minor action. So, does Luke go to Achtu already intent on dying, already cutting himself off from the world around him and waiting for that imminent death? Or does he go to Achtu because he has found himself involuntarily cut off from the Force by something outside of his conscious control, seeking answers and becoming, over the course of his stay on Achtu, more and more embittered and cynical until Rey shows up, opens him up again to the Force, and gives him new purpose? Well, that second explanation certainly gives us a cleaner and clearer motivation for Luke throughout the movie, particularly in the last act, and accounts for his sudden change of heart about the Jedi. Rey's intrusion into his monastic life forcibly reconnects him, if you'll forgive the pun, and he begins to understand again what the Jedi are for and why they must continue. He learns from failure. This is not a million miles away from Han's arc back in A New Hope, or even the arc of the Jedi Council through the prequel trilogy, from whom the Force is increasingly shrouded thanks to the presence of the dark side. So my preferred explanation here, my personal headcanon, is that Luke, in the moment of the destruction of the training temple, possibly even that scene where he reaches out to R2-D2 as the temple burns, finds his connection to the Force suddenly gone. He flees to Aktu in guilt and grief and with a desire to understand, but six years of silence weighs on his heart, and he becomes more cynical, more depressed, more isolated, and ultimately convinced that the Jedi must end. 
Ray shows up, Luke is plugged back into the Force, and steps back onto the galactic stage, buying time for the rebels on Crait by standing against his greatest failure, and even, ultimately, embracing the peace of death, or arguably the great adventure of what comes next. Ryan Johnson, I should say, has, by the way, offered an alternate explanation that Luke cut himself off from the Force so that he couldn't feel Leia specifically and be tempted away from his isolation in order to help her in times of crisis and need, which makes a certain amount of sense and is certainly consistent with his behavior back in The Empire Strikes Back, but it also offers a recapitulation of one of the more interesting and problematic aspects of the Jedi Order during the prequel trilogy, namely the isolation and emotional independence of the Jedi, including the injunction against marriage, which led to that vast gulf between the Jedi Order and the people it purported to protect. It's an interesting perspective, but I'm inclined toward the headcanon solution that Luke was cut off rather than cutting himself off. If you have thoughts on this, I know there's a lot to discuss. Please get in touch and let me know what you think. Let's move on to another question, this one from Erica. Erica asks, Finn was hands down my favorite character in The Force Awakens, but I didn't like the way he was treated in The Last Jedi. He went from being one of the three most important characters in the movie, along with Rey and Poe, to being the least important part of the least important storyline. What happened to FN2187? I have to tell you, Erica... I do not disagree with your perspective here at all. There has been a lot of discussion of the Canto Bite subplot of late, not least of all here on Story and Star Wars, and a lot of the discussion surrounding the character of Rose and her necessity in that storyline. As I've said before, the problem with the Canto Bite storyline isn't that it's outright bad. It's that it goes too far, costs too much, and accomplishes too little. We burn a lot of screen time and world-building investment on a pretty simple plot mechanic which could easily have been resolved in a more straightforward, elegant way. And one of the points of criticism is that the subplot doesn't require three active, full-time characters, Finn, Rose, and BB-8. That problem is only exacerbated when we get to the supremacy, where we literally have our characters standing around chatting on the phone with Poe while DJ takes care of business. The execution scene is resolved by the sudden disappearance, the teleporting away of Phasma and her troopers across the hangar deck of the supremacy. Then the Phasma fight is almost exactly as dissatisfying as the Phasma storyline in The Force Awakens. And that's before we consider the fact that the Canto Bite plot accomplishes precisely nothing. We spend so much time on it, and it only leads us in a giant, time-consuming circle, because we don't shut down the tracker. We don't manage to escape the First Order fleet. If Rose had stunned Finn at the escape pod at the beginning of the movie, then sat quietly next to his unconscious body for the rest of the story, the plot would have turned out in exactly the same way. There are, for me... Only two moments when Finn's character really comes into focus. The first is the introductory scene with Rose, where he finds himself playing the part of the rebel hero mere hours after the destruction of Starkiller Base, a role for which he is singularly unsuited. In that sequence, John Boyega is incredibly charming, charismatic, constantly on the back foot, and in all ways, the likable Finn we saw in The Force Awakens. Then he comes into focus again when he is battling Phasma on the supremacy. Yes, the fight is disappointing, but it works for Finn's character, and it works because Finn belongs within this unique stratum. 
it connects him with Rose throughout their subplot. Finn and Rose may not work as a romantic couple, and goodness knows there's little effort into making them work, at least, but they are ground-level characters in a galaxy populated by heroes, by generals, by legends. Poe, Leia, Luke, and Rey, even Han was a sometimes war hero and a figure of legend. Finn and Rose, though, despite Finn's recent notoriety, are ground-level characters, which means that they are occupying much the same space in the narrative, particularly during the Canto Bite storyline. So the problem with Finn is that he's given an irrelevant subplot and has to share the spotlight with a character fulfilling pretty much the same narrative function. Two characters, if we include the plot-relevant actions of DJ, which means that he gets even less to do than we might like. Imagine a version of Kanto Bite where just Finn and BB-8 go to the casino to get an access code or an encryption key rather than to recruit another unlikely figure into their ragtag band of heroes. Or, better yet, imagine Rose and BB-8 taking on that assignment while Finn is given something to do back on the fleet, something that that will open narrative reflection and opposition with Poe Dameron. Pretty effortlessly, the Cantobite story comes into sharper focus. Since we're talking about the different strata of conflict and opposition in The Last Jedi, let's look at those opposed pairs, which may allow us to understand why parts of the movie feel oddly misaligned. We've talked about Finn and Phasma representing ground-level troops. They are both stormtroopers by training and are both accustomed to following orders and playing their part in a larger strategy, and both, crucially, place a great deal of importance on a single iconic identity and the loyalty associated with that identity. Stormtrooper on one hand, Rebel scum on the other. One of the problems with Finn's arc in The Last Jedi is that he and Phasma are kept apart for the vast majority of the movie in favor of a storyline which doesn't reflect Finn's role in the narrative or in this particular stratum. One step above Finn and Phasma, we find Poe Dameron and General Armitage Hux. Both are leaders, unlike Finn and Phasma, who are more firmly defined as followers, and both are militarily minded. This is much more explicit for Hux, of course, but Poe's action hero solution to every problem, jumping in an X-Wing and blowing something up, speaks to a similar kind of direct action. Poe and Hux are fairly directly opposed throughout the movie, particularly, of course, in that opening movement, and we might even be tempted to see a reflection of Hux's obedience to Snoke and then to Kylo Ren in the relationships between Poe and Leia and later Holdo. Above Poe and Hux, and when I say above here, I am not referring to the quality or importance of the storyline, but rather the scope of the conflict. Above Poe and Hux, we have Rey and Kylo Ren, which is by far the most direct and consistent conflict throughout the movie. The push-pull tug of conflict between the two gives the movie much of its thematic depth, and I could probably spend an entire episode deconstructing every detail of their interactions. But if we gloss the high points, it comes down to two modes of interaction preoccupation with the past and with parents, both biological and adoptive, and the light and dark sides of the Force. I find the former to be really quite sophisticated and engaging, but the latter remains a little thin. Rey is not schooled in the light side of the Force. She is not yet a Jedi, and Kylo fails, as I noted in my previous Last Jedi episode, to articulate a vision of the future, to articulate a political or social or ideological agenda which might win Rey to his side. Burning the past is one thing, but I would have liked to have seen a greater argument from Kylo about the future, particularly after Snoke's death. To jump our pop cultural tracks for just a moment, winning was easy, young man. Governing's harder. 
Finally, above Rey and Kylo, we have the mostly theoretical opposition of Jedi Master Luke Skywalker and Supreme Leader Snoke. I say mostly theoretical because while they don't interact directly in the course of the film, Snoke's role in the corruption of Ben Solo, the use of force projection, and obviously Snoke's desire to find and kill Skywalker are compelling connective threads which wind through the entirety of the movie. If there is a complaint about this conflict, it is that there is no direct interaction. So it's even less anchored in a traditional protagonist-antagonist relationship than the other conflict strata, particularly because Snoke, possessed of the more immediate, defined, and active goal in opposition to which stands Luke, is clearly the protagonist of that conflict. All of this is to say that there are strong tiers of conflict throughout the span of The Last Jedi, and they are all in their way engaging. In fact, with some restructuring and a shift in focus and tone, we might argue that any one of them is strong enough to carry the entire movie. The problem is that they don't cohere terribly well into a greater whole, and specifically with regard to Finn, they don't speak to the greater thematic framework of the movie, leadership, action, and exceptionalism. So to answer your question with your own question, Erica, the problem with Finn is that he is the least important part of the least important storyline and gets nothing to do. Let's conclude with one final question then from Jackson, who writes, Congrats on predicting the reveal of Ray's parentage. Here's my question. Was the fact that her parents were no one from nowhere part of J.J. Abrams' original plan? And will it stick around for episode nine? Thank you, Jackson. For those of you coming in late to this discussion, I have argued since the release of The Force Awakens that Ray's parents are not important, specifically that she is not a Skywalker, and that the ongoing Star Wars universe is stronger for the absence of a significant surname wider and deeper and less anchored in the same archetypal relationships and cycles. The confirmation of this in Jedi comes in two parts. We get the Mirror of Erised sequence in the Mirror Cave, which seems to confirm that Rey is all the Rey there is, and the scene between Kylo and Rey in which it's asserted that they were specifically nobody, that she came from nothing. Much has been made of the tension between The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi in this regard, and the implied tension between J.J. Abrams and Ryan Johnson, but here's my two cents. I think that the Rey reveal was intended in The Force Awakens, was delivered in The Last Jedi, and that it will stick in Episode 9. Which is not to say that I wasn't surprised by it, and by the completely unequivocal rejection of any special lineage and inheritance for Rey. In fact, so forceful was the reveal of Rey's parentage that Ryan Johnson has actually opened the door for a Star Wars turn where it is revealed that this is only the truth from a certain point of view. To so forcefully and powerfully lampshade the irrelevance of Rey's parents is to draw attention to the absence of importance, which may well frame a later reveal that actually Rey is the unexpected love child of Wedge Antilles and Mon Mothma. I will nod to the possibility that her parentage is more significant too in its absence, acknowledging the possibility that Rey is, well, that Rey is like Anakin Skywalker, that she was created by the Force in a virgin birth, which, believe it or not, is still a canonical detail in the Star Wars universe. It is possible. I still consider it unlikely. We will have to wait and see, but for now, my money is on Ryan's version of Rey's family sticking, which I have to say, I find to be the right choice. And that will do it for this episode of Story and Star Wars. Next week, though I am supposed to be on hiatus and enjoying a long-awaited soak in the Bacta tank, I will be back with those promised follow-up thoughts on Solo, a Star Wars movie. Thank you again to everyone who has emailed into the show, and specifically to Albert, to Cardi, to Erica, and to Jackson for their fantastic questions. Thank you all. If you would like to get in touch, you can email pointnorthmedia at gmail.com. And if you want to support Point North and make it possible for me to record more Story and Star Wars podcasts, including, apparently, the very next 
necessary arc-by-arc analysis of the Clone Wars and Rebels? Then head on over to patreon.com slash pointnorthmedia. Every single dollar helps. Thank you all so much for listening. Until next time, until next week, may the Force be with you. <laughs>